Well, let's begin with a prayer. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to be with us now as we discuss your plan for men and women. We trust that as you have promised, you are here. May my words now be yours. Fill me with your truth. You know my limitations. Make it so your good news is proclaimed in this place this morning. It's in your Son, our Savior, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, as I mentioned at the beginning of these sessions on men and women last week, I'm going to, in the interest of time and clarity, focus on making a positive case for what I think the Bible is teaching here this week of man and woman at home, specifically as they relate in marriage. As I said last week, there is scholarly and faithfully Christian pushback on everything that I'm going to share with you this morning. However, After a lot of research and reading, I'm convinced that this view, what I'll be sharing with you this morning, is the most faithful biblical interpretation of which I'm capable. And remember, as we study where we're going, that there is a created order difference between men and women, and that husbands are called to have a limited but real headship or leadership role in their relationships with their wives. That's what we're going to look at specifically this week. We're also going to find... This is what we're going to focus on next week, that while both men and women are called to vibrant ministry in the church, and both men and women may be called to the ordained diaconate, eldership, which our tradition, Anglicanism, the ACNA, breaks down into the roles of bishop and priest, is reserved to men. And arching over it all is the why, the the sermon that is being preached from the scriptures here, a visual sermon to the world about Christ's relationship to his church, head and body, husband and wife, elder and congregation. As there have been for this whole class, there are question cards available and a box to put them in. Uh, Please ask any question that you'd like. The cards are not by any means an attempt to avoid questions, but instead to be honest about my potential inability to answer them off the cuff. I'm going to devote the last session of this class just to questions and answers. That way I'll have a chance to look deeply into all the questions and get good answers, much better answers than I'd be able to come up with if I just had to think of the answers right here and now. But before we delve into the relationship of men and women in the home, I want to reiterate what I said last week about a fundamental philosophical mistake that we must avoid making. Now, it seems to us that any difference in role or authority must come with a difference in value or even personhood. That the person asked to submit must be of less value than the one to whom they are submitting. But that's not true. Think of Jesus submitting to the will of his Father in Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done. There is No distinction of value or personhood. Jesus is no less valuable, no less a member of the Trinitarian Godhead because he submits to his Father's will. So let's keep this truth in mind as we talk this week about headship and submission, these terms which in our culture are incredibly loaded. Now it's also worth noting, before we really get into the scriptural teachings for men and women, to note that they almost exclusively come in terms of marriage. That's not to say that everyone has to get married. 
St. Paul actually says that being single is a blessing. It frees you up to do more ministry. But that the normative state of man and woman is marriage, uh, bearing fruit in the form of children, multiplying, filling the earth, and subduing it. It's also just a historical truth that the readers of the New Testament would, as a rule, have been married and at a much younger age than is common now. So even though there are certainly big worldview principles that all people, single people included, can gain from the Bible's teaching about men and women in the home, the direct commands of Scripture come almost exclusively in the context of marriage. And that gives us a window into the important question of vocation. As we said last week, our culture wants to deny that there are separate God-given vocations for men and women. Men are to lead, sacrifice, protect, and provide, while women are to nurture, to support, and to care. Now, our culture not only denies those roles, but argues that women in particular can only be fulfilled if they're living into the vocation for which God designed men. But as we argued last week, husbands and wives are complementary roles. They're not the same, and the family needs both. Now, the details of who does what around the house can be worked out in each individual relationship. That's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about vocation. I'm talking about how a marriage and family work best when each partner is living into the vocation for which they have been designed by God. So let's get started. When we talk about how a man and woman are to relate in the home as husband and wife, I think we can boil it down to two fundamental vocabulary questions, at least in terms of the Bible. What does submission mean? And what does head mean? For instance, we need to know what Paul means when he writes to the Ephesians in chapter 5, Verses 22 through 24, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, in the interest of letting you know where we're going before we get there, here's what we're going to argue this morning. That when Paul uses the word submit... He's not saying that a wife should be micromanaged, that she should have no decision-making power of her own, that she has no authority in the home or with children, that she has no authority over herself, or even that she can't make reasonable demands on her husband. She can and should do all of those things. But if submitting doesn't mean that, what does it mean? Now, after our Bible study this morning, we're going to see that it means actively supporting, not just believing, but supporting that the husband has the ability and responsibility to make decisions for the household. And actively supporting, not just believing, but supporting that a husband is in a headship, that is leadership with some level of authority, a headship role in relation to his wife. And the reason I say actively supporting rather than just believing is because if we believe the Bible teaches something, it's not good enough to just believe it but refuse to live into it, right? If the Bible teaches that we should preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, it's not good enough to agree that, yes, you have to believe that to be true, but not to actually do anything to support that work, right? We would need, as a church and as individuals, to actually and actively work to support the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
We could go ourselves. We could financially support those who do. We could pray for them and so on. There are myriad ways to do that support, but it's a different thing to believe something and then to actively support it. In the same way, if through studying the word of God, we come to believe that the husband is, quote, the head of his wife, and that a wife should, quote, submit to her husband, we ourselves must submit to that truth, and we must actively support it and live as if it were as true as we believe it to be. So, let's get to these vocabulary words. What does head mean? Well, it probably won't surprise you that the Greek word kephale, translated as head, usually refers to a person's physical head, their actual head. Uh, Obviously, though, Paul does not intend for a husband to be the literal physical head of his wife. That doesn't make sense. He must intend a metaphorical meaning. And what we'll find is that he means that the husband is in a leadership role in relation to his wife, just as your head, as a literary stand-in for your brain, is in a leadership role in relation to your body. A husband, we'll see, has God-controlled and God-ordered, and that's an important point. It means that the husband's leadership is controlled and limited by God. A husband has God-controlled and God-ordered authority in relation to his wife. That's what it means that he is her head. Both of those definitions of submit and of head and the Bible study we'll do now are going to lead us to accept that Scripture teaches a God-ordained and therefore limited in some important ways role of authority for a husband in relation to his wife. The wife, remember, does have real and authentic authority over the home, their children, and her own personal life and decisions. She does. Indeed, she does not need to try to take over the husband's natural role to be fulfilling God's calling on her life. She has a familial calling all her own to nurture, to support, to care for husband and children. But the husband is called by God, as we'll see in this Bible study, to be the head of the home. And his wife is called to submit to him and his leadership. Now, as I promised you last week, our time this morning is going to be organized as a study of three fundamental Bible passages. There are more that address this issue, but these are kind of the big three. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to 19, and Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 36. But what I didn't tell you last week is that I actually want to study Another passage briefly before we get to those three. So I want to begin by looking at Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, Paul famously says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And some have wondered if that means that any role or authority distinction between male and female is done away with, by our new lives in Christ. And at first glance, it might appear to be so. But I think upon deeper reflection, that doesn't seem to be a possible interpretation of this passage. Paul here is writing to a confused church, the church in Galatia, about what someone does or does not need to do in order to become a Christian. Remember that a group called the Judaizers had come into the church after Paul had left 
and were claiming that Gentile converts needed to observe Jewish law, especially circumcision, in order to become true Christians. They had to sort of become Jews first and then become Christians. This passage then, as part of that whole letter, is about how one achieves child of God status. If this passage was intended by Paul to obliterate distinctions between male and female, it seems he would have made that obliteration clear elsewhere. Instead, as we'll see in these other passages that we're going to describe, Paul is continually making distinctions, both at home and church, between men and women, both in authority and in role. So in Galatians 3.28, he's not talking about the obliteration of distinctions. There is no male and female, i.e. no difference between them. He's talking about inclusion in the body of Christ as opposed to the Judaizing influence against which he's writing. So this verse has to do with equal standing before the holiness of God and equal covering of Christ's righteousness, reconciling everyone to a holy God. All are equally children by adoption in Christ through faith. Economic status, ethnic identity, and gender don't matter. However, this is not to say that the categories male and female no longer exist. Of course they do, just as there remain Jews and Gentiles and rich and poor. The categories exist, and it's also not to say that Roles within the body of Christ cannot be differentiated. It's not roles in the body that are in view here in Galatians. Membership in the body is. Are you in or are you not in? Not what are you doing with each other on the inside. So we're going to want to keep this passage in mind as we discuss both man and woman at home today and man and woman at church next week. There is indeed no male and female in Christ Jesus. As we discussed last week, we are equal in our need for him, and we are equally made new by his finished work. But that doesn't mean that we don't need to figure out how to relate to one another, and the Bible must be our resource as we do that. Parents and children still exist. Drill instructors and new recruits still exist, and so do men and women. Not that those three are the same, again, but all three need to figure out how to relate to one another and come to the scriptures to find out how to do that. The Bible has things to teach us as we strive to live together. So let's get to our Bible study. We're going to begin with 1 Peter chapter 3. We're just going to go through the passage carefully, starting with verses 1 and 2. Likewise, Peter writes, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So the likewise with which Peter starts chapter 3 refers back to the end of chapter 2 in which Peter is writing about being submissive to authorities. He tells Christians that they should be submissive to human institutions, like the government. And he tells servants to be subject to their masters. Now, beginning in chapter 3, he tells wives to likewise, that is, in a similar way, be subject to their husbands. Why does Peter say this? Well, the first reason that Peter mentions is so that if some of the women to which he is writing are married to unbelieving men, those men might be won to Christ by the conduct of their wives. 
But this isn't a verse that only has application to this small subset of women, Christian women with non-Christian husbands. We can see that because he calls this wifely submission, quote, respectful and pure conduct. So the submission is actually morally good in the eyes of God. It's respectful and pure, not just in some culturally conditioned way for the first century. And there's a potential bonus that Peter sees here. If some of you obedient women have unbelieving husbands, they could be won to Christ by observing your obedience. Now, it's worth noting here that Peter puts a fence around the submission that a woman is supposed to engage in. Wives, he says, be subject to your own husbands. Right? He's not telling women to be subject to all men or married women to be subject to all married men. He's only telling wives to be subject to their own husbands because he says such behavior is respectful and pure and might even win a husband to Christ along the way. So let's continue in the passage, picking up in verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. That's verses three through six. Here again, we see evidence that this call to submit isn't culturally conditioned, but that it's a good thing that godly women have done throughout time. It's how holy women in the past, he says, adorned themselves, and God sees it as precious. Indeed, Peter uses an example here that seems to rule out any suggestion that the submit might mean anything other than the plain reading. For instance, if this wifely submission were only for the purposes of evangelism of an unbelieving husband, if Peter were only talking to those Christian wives who had unbelieving husbands, Sarah would not be an appropriate example. Abraham is a faithful servant of God. He does not need to be evangelized. Sarah submits to Abraham and his decisions for their household in the traditional way. She obeys Abraham, calling him Lord, going along with him as he obeys God and setting off for a new land in Genesis 12. And assuming she was aware of it, the offering of their son Isaac as a sacrifice in Genesis 22. It seems that the plain reading of the text is best. Wives should be subject to submitting to the leadership of their husbands. It's what holy women of the past did. It's how they adorned themselves. That's what Peter is arguing, made themselves precious in God's sight, and it's respectful and pure conduct. But now Peter is going to give a command to husbands. As we move on to verse 7 here, I want to draw your attention to something. In almost every case in which a biblical writer gives a command to wives or women, he gives a complementary command to husbands or men. Now, our culture finds the commands to women much more problematic, so we tend to focus in on those. But as we do these Bible studies this week and next, listen 
for those complementary commands to men about just how they are to be the head, just how they are to lead their families. We'll see that men aren't somehow getting off easy. So verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay, the first thing to do, I think, is to address the controversial weaker vessel statement. But I think we can dispatch with it pretty quickly because guess what? It doesn't need to be controversial at all. It is merely the vessel that Peter is calling weaker, not the woman in her essence. He's talking about her physical body. The average woman is literally weaker than the average man. This is not controversial. But listen, Peter is saying, she is of supreme value. She needs care and protection and honor. She is the heir with you men of the grace of life. She's an heir just like you, Paul said in Galatians 3.28. There is no distinction in this way between men and women. So you value her, Peter writes. You care for her. You protect her. The value of women is therefore not a reason to get rid of marital roles. It's actually why you husbands should exercise your God-given role properly. And don't miss the deep warning here for husbands. If you don't do this, if you don't honor and care for your wife in this way, sacrificing for her, caring for her, protecting her, honoring her status as co-heir in Christ, if you don't do this, Peter says that your prayers can be hindered. God will, at least in some sense, stop listening to you. Your spiritual life will wither if you are not faithful to God's command. Since he writes, they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So what we have here is a good laying out of the complementary roles of men and women, right? We are different and complementary in our physical bodies, and we are different and complementary in the roles that we have been given. Therefore, it makes all the sense in the world that we would be given in the scriptures different and complementary commands. This is not an issue of figuring out who has more authority, who can be the boss so that one gender can control the other. We need to move past the idea of the Bible describing the relationship between men and women as something that's fundamentally imbalanced. What we are seeing in the Bible is a description of complementarity and the mutual callings and accountability before God. Because as we'll continue to see, for every command given to wives, there are commands given to husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, sacrifice yourselves for your wives. Complementary commands. And that actually brings us to our next passage of Scripture, Colossians chapter 3, in which these complementary commands are laid out quite clearly and simply. We're just going to look at two verses of Colossians 3 this morning, verses 18 and 19. St. Paul here writes, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Pretty simple, right? Submit here is a simple command, and Paul says that it is fitting in the Lord. That is, submitting to your husband is part of how you submit to God. But, Fitting in the Lord has another meaning too. 
submitting to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Submit as God would have you submit. So this is not blind submission, the giving over of all agency or submission to an abuser. Submit first to Christ, Paul is saying, and submit to husbands in ways and at times that do not conflict with that. Your husband asks you to do something ungodly, you do not submit to him. Your husband is being ungodly, you do not submit to him. You submit as is fitting in the Lord. This is why the New Testament can make allowances for divorce in the case of infidelity and abandonment, which would include abuse. Wives are not captive to their husbands. That is not fitting in the Lord. They are to submit, but they are to submit to Christ first and then to their husbands in the way that Christ illuminates. Now, the command to husbands to love your wives and not be harsh is in the context of a complimentary command to them, still sort of a tacit affirmation of the husband's authority, right? It's assumed that the wife will be submitting, setting up a situation in which it's possible for a husband to sin and go overboard and fall into something like abuse. So Paul says, don't do that. As you exercise biblical leadership, love your wives. Give yourself up for them. Those who have authority are to serve others like Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve, despite his rightful authority. And we can't let our 21st century aversion to the word submit allow us to focus so totally on the command for the wife to submit that we miss, once again, that there are two complementary commands here, one each for husbands and wives. A husband's loving of his wife will look like the creation of a home in which submission isn't a regular topic of conversation. He will want her best, sacrifice himself for her, want to hear from her and to see that her wisdom is necessary for his flourishing and the flourishing of their family and mutual life together. He may have to make a decision for the family, one to which his wife should submit as is fitting in the Lord, but he should have sought her counsel considered her advice, and made the decision that serves her best. And the final thing to note before we move on to Ephesians 5 is to whom Paul is addressing these commands. This is of critical importance. He tells wives to submit to their husbands. He tells husbands to love their wives. He notably does not tell husbands to demand submission from their wives, and he likewise does not tell wives to demand loving leadership from their husbands. That's not to say that spouses do not deserve these things. They do. It is to say that Paul does not tell spouses here to make demands of each other. So if a husband is constantly telling his wife that she ought to be submitting to him, he's doing it wrong. Paul instead asks each person to be accountable to God for their own behavior, confessing their sin and repenting when they fall short, and asking forgiveness both from their spouse and from the Lord. So the commands are to the people for what they're supposed to do, not for what they're supposed to make their spouse do. Okay, on to the big one. This is Ephesians 5, 22 through 36. Here again, we have commands to both wives and husbands. We'll take them one at a time. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, 
even as Christ is head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything, in everything, to their husbands. So as in 1 Peter 3, we have wives called to submit to their husbands, again, not to all men, but to their husbands. Let's take a moment now to address the use of the word head. The husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. There is definitely authority, despite volatile arguments at play here. The comparison to Jesus and the church is an instructive one. Jesus has never had anything less than all authority. And the church is called to submit itself to Christ's authority in all things. It is, however, worth addressing an incredibly popular pushback here. We're going to get into a little sort of academia here just for a second. Not too much Greek, I promise you, really hardly hardly any at all. But you will hear from those who want to argue that there should be no distinctions in role or authority between husbands and wives, that head in Greek really means source, and that actually it has no connotation of authority. A common example is the headwaters of a river, right? The head of a river is its source. And the argument is that the church has been reading this word wrong all these years, and that what Paul is really saying here is that Christ is the source of the church, and that man is the source of woman because she was made from his rib. But I'll tell you, it's just not true. If you look up the word in question, like I said, kephale in Greek, you'll see that in almost every lexicon, authority is not only part of, but usually the main and often the only semantic domain, except in obviously non-applicable uses like when the word is used to refer to an actual physical human head. For instance, here's where we get into a little bit of academia, uh, Frederick William Danker's A Greek-English Lexicon of the New Testament and Other Early Christian Literature, the lexicon that I used in seminary and the sort of totally reliable industry standard that everybody uses, that lexicon offers, in addition to the use of kephale to, to mean a person's physical head, two possible metaphorical uses. First, it says, in the case of living beings to denote superior rank. It references other first century literature, but also use these biblical passages specifically. So first choice, the most common metaphorical meaning is superior rank, authority. The only other metaphorical meaning it acknowledges is, quote, of things, so i.e. not living things, but of things, the uppermost part, extremity, end, or point. Think of Acts 4.11, in which Jesus is referred to as the cornerstone or the head of the corner. Even here, there's a connotation of preeminence. And nowhere in this most trusted lexicon is there a reference to source at all. Of course, head can mean source in the same way that it can mean your actual physical head, but apparently it does not mean that in the New Testament Period. Every lexicon that deals with New Testament era Greek agrees that used in this metaphorical way, it connotes authority. Someone who is the head of something else, like Christ is the head of the church, rightly exercises authority in that relationship. If you'll allow one more moment of sort of nerdiness, uh, the one lexicon, there is one, that all proponents of the head as source translation use is called 
a Greek-English lexicon. It's uh, the LSJ for short after its authors Liddell, Scott, and Jones. It was originally published in 1843, and it does mention source as a possible use for kephale. But there are two issues with that. First, the LSJ does not deal with New Testament Greek. It focuses on classical Greek and does not refer to the New Testament at all in its entry on kephale. Second, the official modern editor of the LSJ right now, a renowned scholar named Peter Glare, has written the following about the modern authority debate. This is what Peter Glare writes, quote, Kephale is the word normally used to translate the Hebrew var, and this does seem frequently to denote leader or chief without much reference to its original anatomical sense. And here it seems perverse to deny authority. The supposed sense source, of course, does not exist. And it was at least unwise of Liddell and Scott to mention the word. Now, he closes by saying that he hopes that one day he will, quote, be able to embark on a more thorough revision of the lexicon. So, I know that's a lot. Nerdy academia, I'll gladly share with you all the concordance and lexical data. You can read yourself blind for hours and hours considering all the arguments and counter-arguments on just this one word. There are ancient medical arguments, contextual arguments, church history arguments, linguistic arguments. I have sources for all of them. But for our purposes this morning and in the interest of time, I'm asking you to just believe me for now. Kephale, in the Greek, translated head and used in this context in the New Testament, absolutely connotes some kind of authority and leadership. There just aren't any convincing arguments otherwise. Notice, too, and now we're going to sort of broaden back out to all of Ephesians 5. Notice, too, that we get in the first part of this passage an allusion to the sermon that Christian marriage is preaching to the world. The head-body relationship of Christ and his church is proclaimed by a similar relationship between husband and wife. Husband, in this limited, God-controlled leadership role, is preaching by this very relationship a sermon about how Jesus relates to and sacrifices himself for his church. More on that in a second. For now, let's continue in the passage, beginning again in verse 25. Husbands, Paul writes, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Several things to mention here. First, the husband's complementary role is to love and care for his wife. This involves self-sacrifice for her benefit. 
Husbands are to love their wives as they love their own bodies. They are indeed one flesh, though with different roles, the husband head, the wife body. Note that Paul connects these commands to the created order in Genesis 2, just as Jesus does in Matthew 19, and not to any culturally created condition, and not to something that exists only as a result of the fall. Genesis 2, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, is referenced both by Paul and Jesus, is before the fall enters the world. We also, in this text, have the explicit reason that God set up the husband-wife relationship this way. This is where we have the why. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I am saying, says Paul, that this refers to Christ and the church. Again, he's quoting Genesis 2 here, grounding the head-body relationship of husband and wife not in culture, but in creation. They are one flesh and have been since God made the woman out of man and brought them together as husband and wife. And why has God set it up this way? Paul says that it is to paint a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. Every married couple, man as head and wife as body, preaches a sermon to the unbelieving world about Christ's relationship to his church and ultimately about both God's creative authority and his saving grace toward mankind, his sacrifice, his self-sacrifice of himself in his son for our sins. So after having looked at four key biblical texts, Paul's assertion that in Christ Jesus there is no male and female, along with the New Testament teaching on the relationship between husbands and wives in 1 Peter 3, Colossians 3, and Ephesians 5, what can we conclude this morning? Well, the overarching truths are these. Husbands are to love their wives, highly valuing them as co-heirs in the kingdom, protecting them, laying down their lives for them, just as Christ laid down his life for the church. Wives are to submit to the leadership of their husbands because that leadership was given them in the created order. But underneath those overarching truths, there are some important qualifiers to remember. First, the authority of a husband, though real, is not a blanket authority. Remember, as is fitting in the Lord. Wives have great authority in the home and over children. The biblical commands to children to honor and obey are to both parents. There are claims that a wife can make on her husband. Uh, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is clear that both spouses have conjugal rights to the other's body. It would have been culturally assumed, as Paul says, quote, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. That wouldn't have raised a single first century eyebrow. But Paul continues... Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That's real authority for the wife. Similarly, Jesus rejected the culturally accepted male right to divorce for any reason. And the New Testament also removed any restrictions on educating women in religious matters. And remember, too, as we talked about last week, that in relation to creation... Man and woman are co-laborers, filling the earth and subduing it together. 
Finally, if her life or safety are at stake, things that, in other words, relate to her honor and status as a creation in the image of God, a wife can reject the authority of any person, including a husband. She is first and foremost subject to Christ, as is fitting in the Lord. And remember that these callings are not meant to be enforced by the other party. The husband is never told to make his wife submit, but to love her, to sacrifice himself for her. The wife is never told to make her husband love and lead well, but to submit to him. Men and women both have God-ordained callings to undertake in the context of marriage and family. A husband and father should lead, protect, provide, and sacrifice himself for his family. A wife and mother should nurture, support, and care for her family. Understanding this can remove much tension and abuse. These issues of leadership and submission are not meant to be constant topics of conversation within a marriage. They are the foundation so that a God-honoring life can be lived, not so that authority and submission are continually litigated. These interrelationships are designed to be the default position from which the couple operates. The husband and wife both accept their God-given roles and then work out things like decision-making and household tasks and things like that between themselves. In other words, all you can do is control yourself, entrusting the other person's behavior to the Lord. Well, you can talk to them about it. You don't try to force it. You honor God in your role and pray for your spouse. So to sum up as we close out our Bible study this morning on man and woman at home, a husband has leadership authority, but is called to self-sacrificially love his wife. A wife submits to her husband, but is entitled to receive honor and respect from him. This order that the husband is the head, the leader with measured and God-controlled authority is because of the way God created the world, not because of any particular situation, a connection which both Paul and Jesus make clear, not to culture, but to creation. It's also a sermon to the world, a picture of how Jesus relates to his church, loving it sacrificially and giving himself up for it. And in turn, the church submits itself to his authority and leadership. And finally, let us never neglect to remember the gospel. We talked about it last week. Beginning as early as Genesis 3, we have God's promise that Jesus will redeem us from the curse. This means that part of Jesus' perfection, which is given to us by grace through faith, is actually the perfection of perfect adherence to these biblical roles of submission and leadership. Men, in their sin under the curse, will not live into this vocation righteously. Any of it, leading, sacrificing, protecting, providing, and yet such a life is actually given to men on account of Christ's finished work for them. So, by a miracle and by repentance and faith, Godly leadership is part of the good work that God has created men to walk in. Similarly, women, in their sin under the curse, will not live into their vocation righteously. Any of it, nurturing, supporting, caring, and yet, 
such a life is given to women on account of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So, by a miracle and by repentance and faith, godly submission is part of the good work that God has prepared women to walk in. We will remain sinners, each one of us, who will not fulfill these roles perfectly. And so we pray for strength and guidance. We commit to confession and repentance, and we rejoice that Christ's blood is sufficient for us each and every day. So next week, we're going to look at man and woman at church and what ministry men and women are called to do in Christ's church. But to do that, we're going to, guess what? More Bible study. Uh, Since we've seen a biblical complementarity in authority and role assigning husbands a leadership role in relation to wives, we're going to want to look at whether or not that complementarity carries over into the church. Are men similarly uniquely called to certain kinds of ministry? And what are the ministries to which women might be called? And to investigate that, we're going to look at some narrative examples, some stories, uh, mostly the kind of ministry that women did in the Bible. We'll look at women in ministry in the Old Testament. We'll look at the roles of prophet, judge, and priest. We'll look at women in ministry in the New Testament, looking at the roles of teacher, deacon, elder, and apostle before studying a couple of didactic teaching passages of note, turning our attention from these stories to more explicit teaching. We're going to investigate 1 Timothy 2, in which Paul says he does not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And 1 Corinthians 14, in which he says that women must keep silent in the churches. We will want to know what these verses mean. So come back next week and we will talk about them. But for now, let's pray. Dear God in heaven, be with us, especially be with us who are husbands and wives as we relate to each other according to your calling. Help us to hear you and apply your word to our lives. Allow us all to be a sermon to this fallen world about your love, your care, and your salvation. Be with us as we leave this place now. Let us walk in your grace and peace and comfort until we come together again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.